But one of my most proud moments as a parent has happened this summer. And it is getting Kennedy hooked to the game Monopoly. <laughs> I'm so proud. I'm so proud. Now, I think the reason she got hooked is because I mentioned it, playing it to her, and we did. And the first time we played, she beat me. I didn't let her win. I'm not that kind of parent, okay? She beat me fair and square. And it wasn't even that close. Like, it was pretty quick. Uh, and so I think that really got her hooked. I won't tell you since then how the win-loss column has gone. Um, for, you can kind of tell I'm not going to brag. Uh, I destroyed her every other time is what I'm saying, okay? No. Um, but I'm so proud. She's gotten hooked uh, on this game, Monopoly. And there's, in, in the, the chance cards and the community chess cards, in each pile, there's a certain card in each one, and it's the get-out-of-jail-free card. And that's what we're going to talk about today as we look at Acts chapter 5, is this time in the book of Acts where the apostles got a get-out-of-jail-free card. And when we, look at the, when we read this in a second, the beginning of this story in Acts 5 sounds eerily similar to what we've already talked about in Acts 3 and 4. It's almost like we're repeating the story over again, but you'll see there is a, very, a couple of key details that are unique to this story that set it apart and really get us going in Acts 5 here. So to set up the story like we left off last week briefly is that the apostles are still preaching in the name of Jesus, even though the religious officials have said, do not do this, threaten them with further imprisonment, maybe worse if they continue, but they continue. They're preaching in Jesus' name. They're healing in Jesus' name. The church is growing and multiplying. And that sets the stage for here in Acts 5. Let's read this together. Acts 5, verse 17. And look at the story of the get-out-of-jail-free card. Acts 5, 17. The high priests and his officials, who were Sadducees, that'll be important later, were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. But the angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. So at daybreak, the apostles entered the temple, as they were told, and immediately began teaching. When the high priest and his officials arrived, they convened the high council, the full assembly of the elders of Israel. Then they sent for the apostles to be brought from the jail for trial. But when the temple guards went to the jail, the men were gone. So they returned to the council and reported, the jail was securely locked with guards standing outside, but when we opened the gates, no one was there. When the captain of the temple guard and the leading priest heard this, they were perplexed, wondering where it would all end. Then someone arrived with startling news. The men you put in jail are standing in the temple teaching the people. What a powerful story. An interesting story. As we look at, there's some humor that I at least found in this story here on this get out of jail free card. We're going to focus on three things today as we look at this story from Acts 5. We're going to look at a plot, a plan, and a purpose. A plot, a plan, and a purpose. So first we're going to look quickly at the plot of the enemy. And I said quickly, but it's the longest point, so let me not lie to you and mislead you. It's the longest of the three. The plot of the enemy. As we said at the outset, these religious leaders here in Acts 5 probably feel like they're living the same thing over and over again. It's like, remember the movie Groundhog Day with Bill Murray? They're probably thinking they're waking up to Cher, Sonny and Cher on the radio, right? They, they're like, I got you, babe. They're like, wait, didn't I hear this yesterday? They're, they're looking out at the temple courts and seeing these apostles preaching. They're like, wait, wait, wait. Didn't we tell them not to do that? 
Haven't we commanded them, even threatened them to stop this? And here they are yet again. What, what have we missed? What's going on here? Why didn't they stop when we told them to? What we really see here in Acts 5, I think, is a new distinction of the motives of these religious leaders. If you remember in Acts 4, when you look at what before they arrested the apostles, it said they were deeply disturbed at what the apostles were doing. That was their mindset. They were disturbed. But look here in Acts 5 at their motivation. Acts 5, 17 and 18. The high priest and his officials who were Sadducees were filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. Now, to be fair to these leaders, it's possible that maybe in Acts 4 that their motivation was more um, legitimate. They were really maybe concerned. Well, this is blasphemy. They're teaching the people error. This is not good. We need to stop this. Maybe they had good motives in Acts 4, but by Acts 5, either their motivation has changed from pure to not pure, or what is also likely is that really their true motivation is now being revealed. As they've been tested more than once now, as they've been said no, no to more than once now, maybe their real motivation is creeping out. Jealousy. They say they disrespected our authority. Meanwhile, they're gaining influence and followers, and they're performing these miracles that we can't deny. And then they're probably thinking, okay, well, why aren't we having that influence? Why can't we have that influence? Why, can't, why isn't our part of the, this movement growing like theirs is? Why can't we have these dynamic, supernatural uh, miracles and healings like they're experiencing? And so jealousy, I think, was a big motive of the plot of the enemy here. And jealousy can be very subtle in your life, in my life, but it also has super destructive potential. Jealousy here seemed to be like, ah, oh, it's kind of creeping in, but it actually caused the leaders to arrest and threaten these people again and again and again. So jealousy can be subtle, but it is nasty, and it can ruin your life. And so since, since this is sort of a theme, let's focus on this here for just a little bit here. James, the brother of Jesus, actually writes about this. He writes really about the subtle nature of jealousy, but also the destructive potential of jealousy. So let's look at his words and then kind of unpack the, the, the journey here that he gets us on. So this is James 3, starting at verse 15, verses 15 and 16. James writes, For jealousy and selfishness are not God's kind of wisdom. Such things are earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. For wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. Then skip down to James 4. He, he continues that discussion, James chapter 4, verse 1. He asks the church he's writing to, What is causing the quarrels and fights among you? Don't they come from the evil desires at war within you? You want what you don't have, so you scheme and kill to get it. You are jealous of what others have, but you can't get it, so you fight and wage war to take it away from them. Yet you don't have what you want because you don't ask God for it, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong. You want only what will give you pleasure. So what James does here, I think masterfully, is show this internal, external tug-of-war aspect of jealousy. It does something to us on the inside that's really nasty. And eventually, as we see in the religious leaders in Acts 5, if we don't keep it under check, under wraps, and let the Holy Spirit deal with that, then it will uh, come out in an outward form. It will destroy us and others. So what I want to do is kind of look at this uh, for a few minutes. We're going on a bit of a tangent, but it's, a, I think, a huge theme of this story. It's the, it's the plot of the story. It starts in this jealousy that these men have. And like we looked at last week, 
Um, this can be something that we all wrestle with at certain times. So it's something to, worth looking at. So let's for a few minutes look at what I'm going to call the path of the plot of jealousy. And there's a four-step process. I think we see it here in James. We'll look at some other stories from the Old Testament to sort of, to sort of uh, flesh this out a little bit too. There's really, a, I think we see a four-step process in James here. The path of the plot of jealousy. First, we see compensation, or you could even call it comparison, a compensation. And this is more internal. This is really where jealousy begins. Jealousy begins to take root when I become aware of a personal deficiency, but it's based on someone else. It's not that I see a quality in me that needs work. That's a positive thing. That's good. That's character building. It's when I see this thing that's a deficit in my life based on someone else's life. Okay? So an example of this is, as we see here, Daniel. So the famous story of Daniel and the lion's den, this all started from jealousy. So Daniel's taken into exile in Babylon as a young teenage Jewish man, probably 17, 18 years old. And he is highly intelligent, highly skilled, and highly favored of God. So year after year, decade after decade, he serves the king in high-capacity ways. He is near the top of the leadership uh, pyramid in the kingdom of Babylon for generations, king after king after king. Now suddenly, decades pass, he's in his 80s, and there's a new king in town, and he has seen Daniel's track record. He's probably seen his resume and said, yeah, I'm keeping this guy close to me, because when he's around, good things happen. And so the new king here, he sets up 120 provinces with a leader over each. And then over them, he sets up three key leaders directly under him. Daniel's one of those three leaders. That's fine until Daniel's doing such a good job, the king wants to promote him above the other two. So he's basically going to be vice king. I mean, how cool of a job is that for Daniel in his retirement years? But the other two men that were his equals now have this compensation thing going on in them. They were fine with their position until someone bumped them. And now it's not enough suddenly. This is where jealousy started to creep in for them. Nothing, cha nothing changed for them. It changed for someone else. And then it changed them. You see how that works? And that caused jealousy to come. So they devised this plot to trick the king into making a law that you couldn't pray to anyone but the king, knowing Daniel, a faithful man of God, is going to pray to their, his God anyway, which he does. So when he's thrown into the lines in. That whole story starts with a seed of jealousy based on compensation from the other people around him. It started small, but that's where it led to. Jealousy starts with compensation. You suddenly want something that you didn't even know existed five seconds ago because now someone else has it and you have to have that thing. So for instance, your house is fine until you take a tour of your friend's new house. And then now we gotta do this upgrade, and we got maybe we need to do a bigger house, and we got this is not good enough anymore, honey, you know? And I'm not saying a bigger house is bad or a nicer house is bad. I'm saying what's the motivation for that thing that you suddenly want? That can be a problem if we don't keep it under wraps. You were fine with your vacation that you took last year until you see pictures of somebody else's online, and then it's like, man, are we bums? Like, they went to the Ritz. Uh, honey, we, we're going to, and he's like, I can't work that many more hours to save up for this vacation. It's just not going to work. And so jealousy can creep in, not because we really have a real deficiency, because we're compensating based on somebody else. Maybe it's like, I don't even know how to use an iPhone, but I have to have one because that's what the cool people use. If I'm going to be somebody, it's going to be an Apple product. It works opposite of what I know how to use. I'm going to have to have like 24-7 tech support to know how to turn the thing on, but i got to have it now because they have it, right? Jealousy, again, this seems juvenile and childish, but that's what jealousy is. 
Jealousy is juvenile. It is childish. And yet us mature adults who you know, have everything figured out fall on this pl plot all the time. It starts there with compensation. But then it goes to the second part of the path, and that is complaining. The inward now becomes outward. This thing that I need, that I want, that i got to have all of a sudden, or this thing that doesn't sit right with me now because of them, now I'm going to let them know about it. Now I'm going to let everybody know I'm displeased or I'm unhappy or it's not right or not fair. We see this in Numbers chapter 12. We see sibling rivalry rear its ugly head. Anybody ever dealt with sibling rivalry before? We see that here. So Moses has faithfully led God's people out of Egyptian bondage. Now, his brother Aaron was a key part of that. But he didn't get a lot of the credit. So it's probably rubbing him the wrong way a little bit. Like, it's, you know, his show, but I did all the talking. It's kind of that thing. He's the face, but I'm doing all the work. And so, finally, they, they've left Egypt. They've camped at Mount Sinai for a time. And now they're about to head toward the Promised Land. And for some reason, in the middle of all this, Moses' brother and sister decide they're going to complain about their brother. And their complaint is weird, because their complaint is about who he chose to marry. Their complaint's about his wife. Which is weird, but really, it's masking the real problem for them internally. Because really what they say is, has God spoken only through Moses? Hasn't he used us too? So they begin to complain openly, out of nowhere, for no reason, about Moses. And their complaining is really unfounded, which gets to the next step a little bit. But it's unfounded. So they're like, who put him in charge? Well, God did, <laughs> you know, like deal with it, you know, sorry guys, but, and I'm sure if I'm Moses and I'm hearing this from them, I'm going to be like, do you guys want to do this? I tried to tell God no. Like, I, I don't want this. I didn't ask for it. I'm not gloating about it. Like, you know, I know I'm going to write right here in this story. I'm the most humble man who ever lived, but I get to write the story. So sorry about it, suckers, you know, but it's like, I didn't want this job. If you want it, take it. You think it's great? You think a million and a half people complaining nonstop to you about everything is fun? It's not. I don't want this. So you can have it. But Moses probably didn't do that because he's awesome. You know, That's why I'm never going to make it in the Bible, guys. All right? Just not going to happen. Not, not in the cards for me. But jealousy began internally with compensating even for them. And then it grew and led to this outward complaining. And for us, if we're not careful, what that leads to, what that looks like for us, is we start to gossip about that person and what they have. Talk about them behind their back, maybe even saying some half-truths or non-truths about them. You'll never believe how much debt they had to go into to get that thing. I can't believe that they would live that kind of life. They would, they're just trying to pretend. They're trying to pose. It's not, you know, it's like they, it's all fake, you know, and that we begin to do that outwardly complaining, and it just begins to get really ugly really fast. And it's really what it shows here is that the jealousy is not really of that thing anymore. It's of that other person. And it really gets ugly and nasty as we begin to not just compensate, but then complain. But then in James, he continues on with the third part of this path. And then what, what, what I'm going to call conflating. This goes back inward again. So inward, outward. Now this is another inward part of jealousy. Really what James is saying here in James 3 and 4 is he's, he's basically saying, you think you want what you need, and you think you really need that want. But what James is saying here is, you need less than you realize. And you want more than you're willing to admit. And much of the time, we conflate those two things, wants and needs, which leads to uncontrolled jealousy. Over-the-top, overflowing, nasty jealousy. Because we conflate the wants and the needs, and we legitimize those, and it creeps in. Jealousy confuses us. It convinces us of, the, of this false reality, of this dichotomy that is there that we conflate. 
And we see it here with Daniel. Remember that the men, they suddenly needed a promotion. They were fine with their job description and their pay until someone bumped them. And now they need something they didn't need five seconds ago. It started there and they conflated a need with really a want or a desire. Aaron and Miriam, they needed this authority that they didn't really want. They didn't really, that's, that's why I said that earlier. They didn't really want the responsibility. They just wanted the recognition that Moses got. They didn't want to do the work that he probably had to do, but they wanted to get some pats on the back and get their name in the Bible, which they did, unfortunately, in this case. Uh, they got in there. But what they really just, they wanted validation. They wanted something that they convinced themselves that they needed to have. Jealousy will lie to you. Jealousy will twist the truth in your own mind. It will conflate wants and needs, and it will drive you crazy. And in some cases, it will drive you to the poorhouse. If you let that thing go unchecked and you then want to live this life that other people live and do the things that they do, it can cause huge problems. A way to think about it is this. Jealousy is like an in it turns you into an internal yoga pretzel. Okay? Just picture that in your mind for just a second. Jealousy turns you into an internal yoga pretzel. It ties you up in knots and makes you salty. That's what jealousy does. Okay? That's what it is. It makes you someone that you really don't want to be. But you've let it go unchecked for so long. You've compensated for so long. And then you've complained for so long. And then you conflate and try to justify this nasty feeling and those terrible things that you maybe said or terrible thoughts that you've thought about those people or that circumstance that wasn't fair and isn't right. And I deserve and I need and I want, right? But then it ultimately leads to conflict in the end. And we see this here. Let's, let's read this. Isaiah 14, 12 through 14. Isaiah prophesying here. He says, how you are fallen from heaven, O shining star, son of the morning. You've been thrown down to the earth, you who destroyed the nations of the world. For you said to yourself, I will ascend to heaven and set my throne above God's stars. I will preside on the mountain of the gods far away in the north. I will climb to the highest heavens and be like the most high. Now there's two levels of this prophecy traditionally that you can look at this. The first level is this is a prophecy against Babylon. So Babylon is the top dog. They're the king, the, the, the top kingdom in the world. They have taken Israel into exile. We saw it with Daniel a few moments ago. And so Isaiah, God through Isaiah is prophesying, hey, your reign is about to come to a close. You think you're so high and mighty, I'm about to knock you down to where you deserve to be in the dust. But the second level, traditionally, church history has seen this as sort of an allusion to the fall of Satan. I mean, you talk about a fall from that from worshiping in like the best choir you've ever heard in your life to now being the enemy of God, right? That, that's, that's about as far as you can get. And so there's this spiritual illusion here, traditionally in Acts, Isaiah 14, of this fall. Lucifer, this created being of God, decides somewhere along the way, he follows this path. He wants to now be worshipped as God. He want, and then he's removed from heaven, and since then he's waged war against God. So this jealousy was the same thing from the beginning in him. That, that's why James says in James 3 that jealousy is demonic because it started with him, right? He's the one that said, I will ascend. I will be like God. I'll be worshipped. I'm going to set my throne above the stars. And so that's where that is. Jealousy and selfish ambition also, James says, from that you'll see every evil work. It led to the greatest cosmic conflict of all time. It started here with jealousy. Jealousy has demonic roots that ultimately lead to conflict. And that's why relationships sometimes fracture, is because in one way or another of jealousy. 
That's why some, some, many, I would say, marriages fail. We get off focus. We get looking on this other thing, or we look at a better time, or look at a better relationship, or they're a better wife than you are. They're a better husband than you are. You never talk to them like that. You never do this for me, right? It's jealousy. That's why so many marriages don't make it, because we follow this path of jealousy. It's why many families are broken. It's where society breaks down. So, as we look at this idea of jealousy, don't play this compensation game. Just stay focused on what God's given you, what He's called you to do, and be content with that. Avoid then complaining about what others have and just say, okay, God, thank you for what you've given to them. Thank you for blessing them. Thank you that you did this for them and just bless them on their way. Don't complain. Don't conflate. That then leads to conflict because it will get nasty fast. It's sneaky. It's subtle. But it is so destructive and it's very tempting for us to fall into this plot. And in Acts 5, it's the, it's the same plot here. The, the motivation of the council, it's growing and it's being exposed, but it's just simply jealousy. They got out of control and caused them to then go against the church of Jesus Christ. That's the plot of the enemy. Let's move on then to the second part, which is really the good news, but we'll just spend a few short minutes on it, and that is the plan of God. So we see the plot of the enemy first, and now we see the plan of God. On the surface, the plan of God in Acts 5 seems very simple. Very simple idea, one-step plan, uh, but really it's a supernatural plan that we'll look at here for just a second. The plan, again, is simple. An angel frees them from jail. Like, no work on their part. No planning on their part. They're probably just as surprised as anybody else that there's suddenly an angel that's opened the door. Either the guards were asleep or didn't see, or the angel like had a crowbar. I don't, I don't know what, what happened, you know. But somehow they just go out early in the morning, right? Middle of the night. They're just there. And, and so it's, it's supernatural even though it is simple. That's God's plan. Here's really the power of the plan of God. Here's something to think about this week. The plan of God is above your comprehension and greater than your competition. The plan of God is above your comprehension and greater than your competition. Remember the, you ever heard of the movie Shawshank Redemption? It's all up, spoiler alert, 30 years later. It's about a prison break, okay? If you haven't seen it, you've had plenty of time. Um, but there's a coordinated plan to their prison break, right? There are steps involved. There's a plot, there's a plan. They have to hide certain things and do certain things in a certain way to get out. And the plan, steps. Makes sense. Totally fine. And it works for them. But God's plan to free the apostles here in Acts 5 does not make any logical, natural sense. How is God going to get them out? He's going to send an angel to them. Oh, okay, sure. Yeah, that'll work. Yeah, that's probably going to happen. That happens all the time. No, you know, makes perfect sense. But it, it did work. And it did make sense. And that's what God chose to do here. That was his plan. And I think really it's a, even above the apostles' comprehension. God did what to get it? Do you, years later, tell them, well, a few years later, because then they're all going to die pretty soon. They're going to be martyred. But anyway, so I can just maybe even a few weeks later, like, can you believe that happened? And this is actually the first of three jailbreaks that we'll see in the book of Acts. Well, we got two more to look at, too, uh, coming up in a few months. But it's above their comprehension, and it's greater than their competition. See, I think what God's doing here is saying, I'm going to show these jealous religious leaders who's really in control. I'm going to do something that's going to confuse them, blow their mind, make them so like, what is going on? I'm going to let them know, hey, yeah, I'm on their side. So you guys are just kind of out of luck right now. I think God's doing something there that's above their comprehension and greater than their competition. And here's the comical part to me. I love the scene the following morning. 
The council's there. They're all meeting together. They're all finding their seats and, you know, getting all official, making sure their mics are on for they're going to interrogate these guys again. And so they're there and they say, bring in the prisoners. And so they're waiting and they're waiting, they're waiting, you know, it's like, it's, it's, come on guys. And then the guard comes back in and says, we've got a problem, council. Uh, the prisoners are gone. Like, well, what do you mean? Well, uh, are the doors open? Who let them out? No, no, no. The doors were locked. The doors were closed. The guards were there. They said they've been there all night long, haven't seen anything, haven't noticed anything, but there's no one in the jail. And so I can just, like the panic that ensues, they're running around trying to figure out who's doing, who, who let them out, who was the mole, you know, who was the double agent that, you know, freed them, and who paid off the, the guards and whatever. And really, we, we can maybe assume that because the Sadducees, this is why that's important, who's there? The Sadducees do not believe in angels. Their theology is based on the first five books of the Bible, so they, they, they don't believe in angels, period. They have very little belief in any supernatural event at all. And so God does this intentionally to kind of twist the knife in and say, yeah, if you guys don't believe in that, I'm going to use that to do what I want to do. That's part of my plan. So then they can't explain it. They can't figure out what's going on. No one knows. It's just a madhouse. And I think God's just like looking down, laughing at these doofuses who are so confused over his simple, effective, supernatural plan. Now, I don't know what God's plan for your life is, but I know that it fits that description. I know that whatever God has planned for you is above your comprehension. I know that's true. I know that God wants to blow your mind with his plan for your life, whatever that is. I know that God wants to exceed your wildest expectations of him or of whatever you thought his plan was with the actual plan he has for you. That fits the description every time of God's plan. It's above our comprehension. Daniel was supernaturally released from the lion's den. The, God shut the mouth of the lions and he stayed alive and was brought out. Moses, who was talked about and come against over and over and over again, God supernaturally reminded him and the people, he's the man for the job. He's the one that I call over and over again. It's confirmed supernaturally above anyone's comprehension or understanding that Moses is the man. And then we get to, again, the, the greatest conflict ever, Satan versus God. We see, we sang this morning that Jesus defeated sin on the cross he defeated death by rising from the dead. So that's, that was God's plan. It's above our comprehension, our understanding. It's greater than anything we can ever imagine. So whatever God's plan is for you, it's bigger than you are. That means it's probably not always going to make sense. That means there's going to be a lot of holes. In, and this is me preaching to me for just a second. So when, when there's a plan here and there's like this thing that God's leading us to, there's going to be a big like hole there in the logic in the step I see step one and goal is like step 38 I don't see anything in between there God this is not going to work this is going to fail this is I'm the plan you know I want to believe and I want to trust and I want to have faith but I, I just don't see that that means you're probably in, in the right in the middle of God's plan if it's above your comprehension it's not always 100% foolproof but I think most of the time we can assume that that's what God's going to do so and it's but it's also greater than your competition because whatever God has in front of you, much like an axe here, you might have powerful forces that are opposing that plan at work in your life. Maybe like we even talked about this morning, maybe sometimes you're your own worst enemy in that. We have to get out of our own way to see God's plan fulfilled. But it's always greater than your competition. Your enemy may be relentless, but God is always limitless. His plan will never fail. Think about this. If God can free apostles from jail with an angel... 
If God can shut mouths of hungry lions to save Daniel, if God can resurrect his son from the dead to fulfill his plan, he can do whatever is needed in your life to fulfill his plan for you. It's supernatural. It doesn't make sense. It's above your comprehension and it's greater than your competition. God's plan for your life will not fail. Here's the third part this morning is then we see the purpose of freedom. We see the plot of the enemy, the plan of God, and now the purpose of freedom. When the angel frees the apostles, what does he tell them? Acts 5, 19 and 20. But an angel of the Lord came at night, opened the gates of the jail, and brought them out. Then he told them, go to the temple and give the people this message of life. I think it was Spider-Man's uncle, Uncle Ben, who said, with great power comes great responsibility. Remember that? I don't know if he came up with that. That's a sorry, I remember that. But with, here's what I see in this story. With great freedom comes great purpose. That's what we see in this story. The angel frees them and then gives them an assignment, something to do. And he says, here's what he, it's crazy what the angel says. He says, hey, keep doing exactly what got you here. That's insane. Who's going to do that? Who, who, like that? No, what's, what's the other plan though? Like, like what's the thing I'm missing here? But that's what he says. Go keep doing what got you here in the first place. The angel doesn't say, hey guys, go lay low for a while. These guys are going to be really mad when they find out that you're missing. That's not what he says. The angel does not say, hey, go strategize and do something different for a change. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, could you guys please stay out of trouble for five seconds? Right? I had to come all the way from the top floor to come get you guys. It's a long way. Okay? Just stay out of trouble. He doesn't say that. The angel doesn't say, could you play it safe? Could you be smarter? You know, like maybe not like right in the public square, maybe in the corner at least. Like he doesn't say that. The angel doesn't say, go somewhere else. It's dangerous here. I don't know if you've noticed. Second time in prison in maybe a few months here. Like, yeah, let's not do this again. Third time, you're probably not going to make it out. The angel doesn't say any of that. He says, double down on what you're doing. Keep doing what got you in here in the first place. So they go right back to the, to the main temple courts, and they are louder than ever. They're, they had purpose in their freedom. And as we celebrate, as you can see, the flag threw up all over me this weekend, even on my socks, boom. Um, yeah. We celebrate freedom this, this week on Tuesday, right? We have great religious freedom in this country. Now, is there growing pressure coming against that? Yes. We're not, I'm not going to deny the reality of the situation. Uh, is there increasing societal uh, you know, let's not do that. Or let's be, yes, absolutely. It's increasing, it's growing, it's getting darker and darker and darker. But still, compared to almost any other place in the world, we have extreme freedom religiously. The challenge this morning is, are we living out our purpose in that freedom? We have freedom, do we live out that purpose? There was a, a man named Orson Vila, and he was, uh, lived in Cuba, uh, so in the early 1970s, he had had a, a growing medical practice in Cuba, a communist country. So no public churches allowed, very cramped down on what you can do there. So in the early 70s, as a young man, he left his uh, medical practice and became a pastor. Uh, and so he started home churches, because that's really the only way to do this thing. You can't have a building like this and meet on a Sunday and announce it and post it online, you know. Uh, it's like you just got to kind of do it as secretly as you can. 
Uh, so he started a series of house churches. Uh, so in 1988, as far as we know, for the first time, he was arrested uh, and put in prison for five months for, quote, illicit meetings in his home. 1995 was kind of the big story that put him on the map. By 1995, so this is about 20 years into ministry for him, uh, his network of house churches was nearly 2,500 people strong, meeting in hundreds of churches all over uh, that area of Cuba. The government ordered him to shut down his house church. And he first requested that this be given to him in writing to make it official, which they did. They sent him a letter ordering him to cease and desist your house church meetings. And he said, I'm just going to ignore that. Basically, threw the letter in the trash. So then enough time goes by and the authorities come to his home to demand that he shut down the church meeting because they caught them during church. They came in, in the middle of the service and said, shut down your church meeting. He said, well, I, I don't close doors. I open them. So he was dragged and arrested and without a trial was sentenced to two years in a prison labor camp. So this actually in the mid-90s made like national news. Um, Amnesty International got involved in trying to free him from prison because there was no trial. Uh, Pope John Paul II actually sent a cardinal to talk to Fidel Castro, urging him to free uh, this Pentecostal minister uh, from an unfair prison labor camp. Um, but here's the story. So he sits two years, but after about 11 months, he's released to finish the last year and one month on house arrest. Now, this is not an official document, but according to inside sources, here's why they released him early. Because revival broke out in the prison in which he was staying. So many prisoners were getting saved under his ministry, getting healed under his ministry in the prison. They had to get him out. Okay? So they, they won't say that publicly, but that's the inside story on Orson Vila. So he's released to go back, and guess what he does? We're having church. Their church keeps going and growing. Even a couple of years after this, at one of their church meetings, uh, there's a young woman who's a quadriplegic, and she's miraculously healed in the church service. Word gets up to some a government official. They come and arrest him again for five months for practicing medicine without a license. Okay? <laughs> So his church has grown the last numbers that, uh, that I can find, uh, over 4,000 people in his network of house churches all over that region of Cuba. Now the government in recent years has sort of gotten the hint. So they're not as, uh, they're not trying to stop him. They're not really persecuting him as much, but they offer no assistance, no protection. If you get in trouble, we're not here. We didn't see anything. He, he's asked for permits to get buildings. It's always been denied because they know it's, they know it's for a church. And so Orson Vila had little to no freedom, yet he lived out his purpose. I have great freedom right now. Am I living out my purpose to the best of my ability? You have great freedom. Are you living out your faith to the best of your ability? Are you living out your purpose? the best of your ability. We concluded this scripture last week, but it applies here too. So let's read this as we close this morning. Ephesians 5, 15 through 17. Paul writes, So be careful how you live. Don't live like fools, but like those who are wise. Make the most of every opportunity in these evil days. Don't act thoughtlessly, but understand what the Lord wants you to do. So in Monopoly, if you have the get out of jail free card, okay, 
If you get into jail, first of all, you get three chances to roll doubles and then get out of jail for free. If you don't do that, you gotta pay 50 bucks to get out, right? That's how the game works. I didn't make the rules, Parker Brothers did. You know, blame them. But here's the thing, if you have this get out of jail free card sitting there, and you still continue to pay 50 bucks every time you're in jail, that freedom that is free is useless to you. If we have freedom, to live out our faith, to worship openly, freely, to share the good news of Jesus with everyone and we don't do it, we're misusing our freedom. We're not living in the purpose that God has called us to. And I'm including me in this plea. It's, it's an us and we thing. What more can I do to live out my purpose better with the freedom that I have? How much further can I push the kingdom with the freedom that I have? We have this freedom, so let's take full advantage of it. Boldly sharing the gospel, selflessly serving others, clearly living out a life of faith, simply inviting others into this body of believers, praying for others as the Spirit leads and guides us to do so. May we not just celebrate freedom on the 4th of July, but may we live out the purpose that the freedom affords. May we use this freedom as it was intended. The challenge is may we find purpose in our freedom to oppose the plot of the enemy and live out God's plan for our lives. Let's pray. God, thank you today for this reminder that the enemy has a plot against us. And sometimes he attacks from without and sometimes as we discussed today, we're our own worst enemy. He uses our own jealousy to get the best of us, to distract us, to put us in our own type of prison where I can't see the good things I have because I just focus on the things that I don't have. Or I can't be happy for that person because I just focus on I don't have that and I want that and I need that. Jealousy can be our own prison that we create ourselves if we don't allow you to do the necessary work that we need you to do to free us. The enemy has a plot. But God, we know ultimately that you have a good plan. It's a plan that we don't always understand if we ever understand it. It's a plan that we can't make happen. We can't force it. We can't manufacture it. It's a plan where sometimes the odds are impossible that this is going to work. I feel like God led me this direction, but I don't see the next step. I feel like this is God's plan for my life, but I'm really scared right now. And I don't see a way out of this. But God, we trust that you have a plan every step of the way. And may we live out your plan with purpose. We know that despite what the individual plans are that you have for us, your ultimate plan is to share the gospel. We know that you've commissioned each of us to tell people the good news of who Jesus is and what he came to do and how he can change their lives. And so may we walk in that purpose, walk in that power. And God, would you forgive us when we don't? Would you encourage us when we think we can't? Would you help us to live out the purpose, to see the plan come, to see lives changed and transformed for your glory, to see our city changed and transformed for your glory, to see people come to a saving knowledge of Jesus for your glory. May we walk in the plan you have for us in purpose. Thank you, Jesus, today that you are enough for us, that you go before us, that you are our encourager, and that you will lead us through toward your good, perfect plan. I thank you for it in Jesus' name.